This is episode 51 of the Landscape Photography Show, and on this episode, we're continuing from the past episode. And if you're new to this, or if this is the first episode that you're listening to, go ahead and pause this for a second and head back to episode 50 and start listening to that one, because this will probably make a lot more sense when you start there, because this is part two of my interview with Kevin Jordan. Now, If you're unfamiliar with what we're doing here, if you forgot from last week, Kevin texted me, and and Kevin's a good friend of mine, and he said, hey, how about I interview you for your own podcast? And I had some hesitations for that. Like I said last week, I was in line for a spicy chicken sandwich at Chick-fil-A, so I was a little preoccupied mentally, if you know what I mean. And... I said finally, after a few weeks of thinking about it, okay, let's do it. And I had a couple stipulations. I wasn't allowed to know any questions that he was going to ask beforehand. And I had to answer any question that he did ask. So this is part two of that. Again, if you missed last week or if you haven't listened to that yet, go ahead and listen to that episode first. That was episode 50. But let's get into the second half of our discussion. The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Um, You've got a YouTube channel, and I know in a recent video um, about exploring a forest in eastern Tennessee, you said that you made sort of the conscious decision to stay in your creative flow and not try and film anything when you're out in the field. Mm-hmm. Is is there a pressure that goes into being a content creator that kind of regularly affects your photography? Yeah, 100%. Um, I think, and ac- actually I've talked with uh, photographer Sarah Lindsay about this at great extent, both in our discussion in the podcast and afterwards after we stopped recording we talked for a solid hour about this about how how difficult it can be to both focus on the quality of like producing video as content teaching people and also trying to get the photograph with the best light and being inspired by the by the whole experience it can be extremely overwhelming when you're trying to balance all of those things and in that video in particular, I I did start to record a vlog while I was there. It's a a trail that I've wanted to hike for a number of years. And I finally was in the area and and had a whole day to to experience it and explore down there. And when I started um, to get my camera out to start filming, I just felt like I really needed to spend that day for me to just take the photos that I wanted to take versus try to entertain an audience while I was there. Um, because for the most part with video creation and content creation, you know, that's, that's what you're trying to do. Analytics tell you to keep viewers eyes on the video. So how much interesting B roll and, and how much, you know, quality tips can you provide throughout the video of, of what, they can do and how they can improve their own photography and and it can be creatively draining at times for your own photography because i can't tell you how many times that i have 
gone out into the field to do this and focused solely on the video side of it and missed the best light in a place. Um, and I don't, I don't regret that because I know that video creation and content creation is part of what I do, but learning how to balance those two things has been a multi-year learning experience for me of, of do, do I want to get the right photo here? Do I want to get the best photo possible here? Or do I want to teach here? Um, and, and you can do both ways. Like I think the teaching side of it, I think guys like Gavin Hardcastle do an incredible job of the teaching side of a video. And then guys like Michael Shane Bloom do an incredible job of taking you to a place and showing you how creatively he photographed that place just by the time lapses and photos that he shares and doing like a voiceover of, of what he saw and, and why he decided to frame something up. So there are two very different types of videos that you can create. Neither is better or worse or right or wrong. It's just the experience that you want to portray while you're there and how good of a photograph do you want from that place? Because that can greatly impact what type of video you're trying to do, if, if that makes sense. Oh, it does. Definitely. And, and as someone who is, who is not at all a multitasker, I'm impressed by anyone who can go about doing that. Because I mean, if, if I were to be tasked with trying to do both those things in the field at the same time, I, I think both would probably suffer to the point that neither would be a, a usable product in the end, or at least not something that I'd be happy with. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that's where perfection and, and control comes into it. Like how good of a product do you want to come out with, uh, when you do post something on YouTube, because, you know, people trolls as they're called, I guess, will come out of the woodworks. If, if you do produce something that they view as less than ideal for them and their experience, um, that's few and far between, but it does happen. Um, but, but just to expand on it a little bit, like in that sense of, of times that I just want to go out and take the photos. I did the same thing when, when I went to Kenya, what I talked about a little bit earlier uh, of going to a new place and seeing all this, all these different things. And while I was leading like a photo tour there and I'm making like quotations with my hands right now um, and, and, and helping people get better photos while we were there, in the same sense, I was experiencing a new place, new light, learning about um, a location. And I just, I didn't have the mental space or, or right thoughts about how to make a video in that location. So I just filmed a bunch of B-roll. I used a bunch of images that I got and just did like a talking portion while I got back uh, to my house and my own studio about what I experienced there and what I saw and what I learned. Um, so sometimes I think people need to understand that with the pressures of, well, the self-inflicted pressures, I think, of people like me who put out a, a video on YouTube every single week, um, it can be draining sometimes to constantly teach while you're in the field versus 
taking photos for yourself, staying energized about what you're seeing and, and staying jazzed about photography in general? Well, that's actually a pretty good segue to this next question, but there, I feel like there's sort of a certain inherent vulnerability that can come with creating content with your face attached to it and putting it out into the world. You don't really have that sort of nameless, faceless anonymity that allows you to stay more private. Had <laughs> yeah. that personal visibility ever prevented you from exploring a certain topic or releasing something to the public? It has tempted me to, um, but I don't think it's it's held me to that. I don't think, uh, for anyone who's listened to the podcast for a long time, I don't think they could say that I shy away from topics. Uh, and I'm very confident in that. I'm very proud of that about the podcast. You know, when we had David Thompson on talking about race relations, when George Floyd got murdered, um, that was an incredibly thought provoking and honestly a, a discussion that almost brought me to tears while we were recording. And I really had to, make a, a, a valiant effort to continue recording through that discussion or talking about mental health and how that's impacted my photography, having uh, guys like Ryan Dyer come on and talking about substance abuse. Um, I do not want to be a place or a person who shies away from these things because having a face and vulnerability to topics um, makes, makes it more relatable. And I don't want to say that to have people think, well, he's just trying to be relatable to get me to follow him. That's not the case at all. I think having a face and being vulnerable, I want it to be relatable so that if you are going through the same thing that you aren't going through it alone, like photographers, People who do have a face attached to their content are people. Um, we go through a lot of the same things. We go through creative blocks. And I know guys like uh, Nick Page ha have talked about this in the past on their videos too, of having creativity blocks in their own photography and, and really struggling with that and being bold enough to talk about it on their own channels of, you know, he has over 100,000 people uh, who are subscribed to his channel, who are watching it. And I just, I just think that I've made a conscious decision and an effort not to be afraid to talk about anything. Now, do I have to force myself to do it sometimes? Absolutely. When I forget what I even talked about on the podcast, but I was waffling back and forth between recording it or not. And finally, just to force myself to start, I just hit record. And I think at the very beginning of the episode, I was like, well, I've hit record. So here we go. Let's dive into this. And it was like the worst intro segue into a podcast ever, but <laughs> it, it forced me to discuss the topic. And um, I, I think it's something that I've done through life even, and that my wife and I ha have talked about this in the past of forcing ourselves to do things that are scary, how we have to tell somebody that we're going to do it. So then we are held accountable to that claim that we are going to do something. 
whether or not it's scary, uh, whether or not it, it, whether or not that person even cares. Like, I think it holds us accountable for what we want to do in life. And, and I've kind of carried that over into photography too, of not caring about unfollows, not caring about, um, like in the whole race relations thing, I got messages back from that episode, messages back from posts um, that were very sad um, and, and very hurtful, hurtful words from people of uh, using racial slurs, even directed at me supporting that, but knowing that other people who have lived with that their entire life. Like I'm happy to take that for just a moment in time to see what they experience every single day of their life. Um, I'm, I'm happy to do that. I'm, I'm happy to experience that. Um, and I stand with them. I stand with anybody who comes on the podcast or, or wants to share, uh, vulnerable experiences in their life. And, I applaud that. I think we need more brave photographers who will stand up and, and be vulnerable with people. Yeah. And, and I appreciate that you do that too. Cause I mean, I, I know with, you know, something like podcasts or just content in general, like they're typically going to have a, a specific genre or topic associated with it, associated with them. But just because it's a photography podcast doesn't mean that, you know, as photographers, we don't have other parts of our life and other parts of society touching what we do. You know, if you're having a bad day, it might come through in your photography. If, you know, a certain part of society, a certain part of vulnerability that you have um, is affecting you either in the short term or the long term. I mean, that may come through in photography and it's probably worth hearing about, um, you know, on a, a podcast that, you know, may not be just need, need to be photography in general, but can expand a little bit on those ideas. Well, it's, it's just relatable too. like, yeah. It's life. Like going back to the David Thompson thing, we talked about, okay, race relations that was going on in the news. It, it still is right now. And it probably will be for years to come, but you know, okay. Has he experienced that in the landscape? Has he experienced that going out shooting? Um, that would never cross my mind, uh, as a photographer of, how can something going on in culture right now experience you impact you in the field? Um, and, and for topics like that, for touchy subjects or, or subjects that call people to be vulnerable about what they're going through there, they think about that stuff in the field all the time. You know, if you, if, if me and you talk about going out into the landscape, we're thinking about, we go out in nature to kind of get away, to clear our minds, to photograph things, to go into this flow state and creative zone. But, um, what are other people dealing with through the same thing? I mean, yeah, it's the idea that, you know, just because you're holding a camera, it doesn't mean racism is going to go away. It doesn't mean that anxiety is going to away, going to go, going to go away. So even if you're holding a camera, those things still exist and they're still going to sort of permeate throughout what you do. Yeah. 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 And I do, I do want to credit, um, this whole thing, this whole idea of, of vulnerability spawned from, I think it was, uh, the second or third, maybe fourth episode, and I talked to Sarah Marino and, and, you know, we, we talked about a lot of topics that, that she enjoys talking about. 
And then I asked her, you know, what are some of the questions of people coming up that you would want asked that aren't like the typical podcast questions? And and the one that stood out to me was I was having Aaron Babnick on a couple episodes down the road. And she was like, I want to know how Aaron had the mental capacity to continue photographing after her home was burned in the California wildfires. Um, and I applaud Aaron for being very vulnerable and answering that question and talking about how difficult that time was for her. But that's where this whole idea and goal of, of talking about deeper subjects in photography really came to fruition. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so what about the relationship between sort of content creators and their audience? I mean, I feel like as an audience, I think if you watch enough videos or read enough words of, of certain people, you feel to an extent like you know them personally, but what is it like being on the other end of that when you don't know these people that feel to an extent like they know you? Um, or do, hmm. you, do you notice it at all? Yeah, I do notice it. Um, it's, it's different. I don't want to say it's weird because I don't want to alienate people from reaching out, which I do appreciate when people do reach out and, and kind mm -hmm. of want to talk through things or, um, you know, even like Instagram DMs or a message, like an email through my website that I get. Um, I don't want to alienate people from doing that or make them hesitate about doing that. But it is different that they see you and hear you on a weekly basis versus you hear from them maybe like once a year. Um, it's, it's a very different dynamic. And I remember I was in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. This was my first experience with it. And I had been doing YouTube for not too long, maybe a few months by that point. And these two photographers were coming off the sand dunes that are out there. And I was like, anything good to shoot out there? Cause it like conditions weren't looking very good and it was really hot. And I, I was debating whether or not to even go out there and start photographing. Um, but one of them stopped and was like, Hey, I, I know that voice. And I was just like, yep, yeah, just, just me. My name is David. I'm from Tennessee, just visiting out here. Uh, and he was like, I follow you on YouTube. And like, we had this big conversation and it was very humbling and it was like, it was kind of exciting to know that I was actually making progress and reaching people. But at the same time, I was like, wow, I have never seen you, heard your voice or anything. And yet you hear me every single week. Um, it, it's, it's very different to think about it that way. But I'm also very appreciative to the people who do message me and want to share experiences. I will say the one thing about the one thing that's most difficult about it is that people tend to not understand that this is still a job for me. So when hobbyist photographers who work a full-time job want to go out and photograph on the weekends and they invite me with them, if they're like in my area, if they invite me to go out and photograph with them, it is not always easy for me to do. And I rarely do go with people just because like, this is my job. I take time away from family throughout the week. So I, I'm kind of like 
you, I guess, is in that I want to leave my weekends open for family time. I want to week leave my nights and, and afternoons open for family time. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't always enjoy picking up a camera and going out on weekends, which seems weird. Um, but I, th I think I felt guilty about that at first, but the more I've listened to other photographers talk about, you know, they go months sometimes without wanting to go and, and take photos, um, that, that, has given me a little bit more comfort in the fact that it's okay to say no, it's okay to have those boundaries when, um, you know, you need that kind of for your mental health. Yeah. I think that happens a lot with sort of creative disciplines and that I would say the majority of people that engage in some kind of creative discipline, whether it be photography or drawing or something artistic, it, it's often a hobby and sort of a, a mental escape from them, but there are, or for them, not from them, but there are plenty of people that do them as a career. So it's a sort of, you know, why would you want to get away with away from this? This is how I get away from other things. But yeah, it's just a, a change in thinking. Cause I mean, my, my girlfriend's a graphic designer and I mean, she's creative all day, every day. And I have the benefit of being able to do landscape photography part-time and they're, I take chunks of time away from it. You know, often I'll take winters off from it. Oftentimes I'll just put the camera down for a bit because I want to do something else. But it it's not a benefit you have when you're full time. You creativity has to be a habit more than it is a when it hits on the weekend kind of thing. Yeah. And I think anyone who follows me know I like to, you know, lay on the couch and watch sports and, and relate to them through different shows that are popular right now. So I like to veg out all the time and just watch. I'll spend a whole Sunday watching a golf tournament or a whole afternoon watching like back-to-back -back basketball games. Like we were just talking about the Celtics before we came on. Like those are my hobbies. Those are my things I like to do. And uh, I like to leave time for them too. Well, I at least appreciate you brought up the Celtics instead of the uh, Red Sox because that's a, that's a bit of a pain point right now. <laughs> oh, they're so bad. At, at least we chose the short season to be horrible. Yeah, I'm just hoping it doesn't <laughs> like it doesn't carry over into next season. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. Hey guys, I just want to pause real quick and tell you about a really special opportunity that you have to get 33% off off of all of my courses. To do that, just go to my website, davidjohnstonart.com and head over to the Learn tab and click the Landscape Photography Courses. In there, any of my courses that are listed are 33% off for a limited time only for podcast listeners. That could be any course that I have on my website plus any that's for sale on Visual Wilderness. Just when you're checking out, use the code DAVID33 during the checkout process and you can get 33% off of those. Again, davidjohnstonart.com and use the code DAVID33 just for the landscape photography show listeners. Let's get back to our talk. So I want to talk about podcasting for a second. Um, you, you've been doing it for, I want to say, maybe six years now. You had Photography Roundtable um, early on, and as you said, you kind of stopped that before you went to Haiti, and then came back with the current show, Landscape Photography Show, uh, I would say, I think 2019 is when you started to back up? Yeah. What, what, you know, what was the reason that you decided to 
start with a new podcast in a similar format as opposed to start up photography roundtable again that already had a following, I would imagine? Um, a couple different reasons. So I felt like photography roundtable was built around surface level conversation. Um, I feel like this show is around getting to know the photographer in particular that's coming on, which is how I want it to be, to be seen and to be viewed. Um, like I said, at the beginning of our discussion here, I want my voice to be decreased so that their voice can, can be heard and their experiences can be heard because I have a set number of thoughts in a particular time and, and place, and they have a completely different viewpoint. So keeping that, um, to keep keeping the podcast in, in, in that format has not only allowed me to continue to be excited about it, but it has helped me selfishly to continue learn about other photographers and experiences and also build relationships and friendships with other photographers. I, I forget who I was talking to the other day, but I uh, they were asking about YouTube versus podcasting. And I told them that podcasting really led to personal relationships and friendships, whereas YouTube led to more business opportunities and uh, collaborations with other people, uh, and ways to make an income with photography, not from YouTube specifically, but leading down different avenues of using video in, in that way. Um, so that's what I wanted to keep the podcast at now, a less, I, I guess a less cool way to say it is that that website had a lot of bugs with it and I was too <laughs> lazy to go back and fix them after a two year hiatus of not now doing anything with out. it. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> so I, I did, I started to go back and work through working out the bugs, but then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do a fresh start. Like I'm not even going to worry about like the following that that had. If it's, if this is good enough, they'll come back around. Yeah, I think it makes sense. And also as a listener too, I definitely, I agree with what you said about the previous podcast being more surface level compared to what you're doing now. And I definitely notice a difference. And I think a new name and a new logo just kind of helps people sort of bookmark those two things as different chapters. Yeah. Separation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to make this feel like you're, you're choosing between like, you know, favorite children or anything, or <laughs> I know you've said you've made some good connections, but do you have any favorite podcast interviews that you've done? Um, let's see. I always love having, uh, Dusty Doddridge on just because he is, I could ask him one question. He, he just makes my job really easy. I could ask him one question at the beginning and he could talk for a whole hour on that topic. Um, so those are always my favorite episodes to do is how, what's the least amount that I can talk and what's the most amount that the other person can, can talk for. Uh, I think that for me, I, I rank in my mind, my favorite episodes based on this sounds really bad, but based on how, how much I can stump the other person. It's almost a contest <laughs> for me. Um, and the people who give me the biggest challenges in doing this are 
Aaron Bobnick, who I mentioned earlier, that episode was really fun to do because I felt like, ah, again, this sounds really bad. I felt like I won in that conversation and breaking her out of, she's an incredibly calculated and intelligent person. And I felt like I broke her out of that a little bit and talking more personally about photography. Um, So that's what I mean by, I feel like I won in that conversation. It's almost like a debate for me going back and forth with people. Um, Ian Plant is always somebody that I enjoy having because he challenges me in that sense. Um, The David Thompson episode that I mentioned, how we talked about race relations, and then also how we talked about his photography and how he views landscapes and uh, his, his famous cypress tree images that he produces. All of that was a fascinating conversation. Um, Sarah Marino is a person that I love having on all the time. And she was one of the first ones that I reached out to and one of the first episodes that I did come out with. And then probably, let's see, a more recent episode was the one with Candace Dyer. Um, because I have never had anyone ever talk or mention um, Native American belief systems in a landscape and how they view different features and kind of like the belief stories behind specific mountains and and their their like story and, and I guess it's religion around viewing the outdoors as a certain way. Um, was really inspiring to me and made me think a lot differently about locations that I go to photograph all the time because it just gives you that idea of, well, how did somebody in a completely different culture and time think about or experience this location too? So that that's another one of my favorite ones for sure. So I guess um, in no particular order, Aaron Bobnick, Ian Plant, David Thompson, Sarah Marino, and Kenda Steyer. Do you do you have any white whales in terms of podcast guests? Um, I did. Uh, I, Chris Burkard was a white whale for a long time. Um, we've actually DM'd several times over the last six years about doing an episode, and we finally had one to do together. Uh, and and it was good. It was a good conversation. It was fun to talk to him and get his ideas on landscape photography. And then look, this community, some of the stuff that we've talked about in this episode of kind of keeping locations less known, um, versus putting locations out all the time, we have differing views on that, slightly differing. Like he still believes in preserving locations and things like that, but um, maybe slightly different views than the norm. So it was good to hear his thoughts. And I did learn a lot from that episode. And I have learned a lot from Chris um, for like the business side of photography, but I'm trying to think white whales, man. I would love to, huh, I would love to do more panel type work, but I'm honestly, I know Matt Payne and F-Stop Collaborate and Listen does a lot of that and have like group discussions. 
but I'm honestly so lazy about reaching out to people and, and scheduling times of doing episodes. It's, I don't know why it's so draining for me to do, but it is sometimes. And just thinking about having three or four people to do that with at a time and, and logistically getting everybody together in one place for one episode, um, just seems like a challenge. Maybe I'll take it on in the future. Uh, Right now, though, I don't really have any white whales. I don't, I don't want to have an idea of a person before I start talking to them because I don't want to portray that onto them as we're talking uh, or formulate questions around who they are and kind of what they think. Now, that's a lot easier to do and discuss with people that I already know, like you uh, and like a lot of other people that I know in photography. But I want to also kind of get away from the most popular people in photography. And I also want to talk to people who are just starting out. Um, I also want to talk to people who just picked up the camera for the first time. Cause how we talked about this just earlier in our conversation of, I thought I was a better photographer back then. How much insight do they have for us as people who've been doing this for years about creativity? You know, I think we can learn a lot from people who are just starting out and have, if we're talking about numbers of following who have a couple thousand followers on social media versus a hundred thousand followers. I don't want numbers or analytics to dictate the quality of information and ideas that they can provide listeners with. All right. So you hit me with a good segue there. Cause I wanted to bring up uh, Chris Picard. I want to, I got a couple more questions I want to talk about in terms of business. Okay. And in your episode with him, uh, he talked about the importance of sort of specialized, specializing in business and how creating a niche can be an avenue towards getting more work. I've also heard others say that these days we kind of need to be a photographer and also something else. So for example, a photographer and a writer, a photographer and an educator, just given how saturated the industry is. Do, do you see yourself as having a niche within landscape photography? And if so, like, has that translated into getting you any additional work? I think I have a niche in terms of voice. Um, I don't think I'm the best photographer in the world. I think I have a lot of room to improve in that, but I think I've made my niche in terms of giving people access to my voice and being a strong communicator. Um, that goes back a long time. I've always had the ability to sit down and do like I loved essay tests in college because I had the ability to sit down and just start writing and automatically paragraphs and things like intro subject, core, uh, thesis, and then conclusion would just fall into place. And I was very good at doing that. I can do the same thing with talking. If I hit record on my camera, I hit record on the podcast. I can have a few notes jotted down either on paper or in my head, but as I'm talking, for some reason, I have the ability to formulate, again, thesis, but also formulate problems and uh, 
issues that they could come in contact with when they're trying to do this and work around to how they can make it work for them. Um, so ideas and, and formulating answers and videos and, you know, 45 minute rants on podcasts that I do from time to time has always been a, a skill for me that I didn't know how to use for business until I discovered video and podcasting. Um, so I think that that's my niche in photography. So, so this is probably going to be as relevant as ever given the ongoing pandemic, but I've, I've heard business owners and photographers in particular talk about sort of the importance of having multiple revenue streams. I've heard it be described as sort of making sure you're sitting on a stool that has four or more legs so that if one of those legs or more than one of those legs disappears, you'll stay upright. Mm -hmm. um, in photography, those legs could be like print sales, workshops, YouTube, contract shoots and things like that. If in a perfect world, if you could reliably sustain your business on income from a single revenue stream in photography and just know it would work out, is there a certain one you would choose? I would definitely choose print sales. Why is that? It is the most enjoyable thing I can think of and have done very minimally, but have done to earn money with photography because it, it almost gives you as a photographer a sense of validation um, that your image was good enough for somebody to spend a, a significant amount of money on. Because if you think about how much money it takes to have a quality print, how much money it takes to display that print, how much money it takes to have overhead costs of inventory of that print, um, you kind of have to spike the price up a little bit to, to cover all your costs. But when somebody sees that and has a connection to either the image, the idea or the place, that is very validating to me as a photographer. Um, whereas video content, you know, people stay around for a limited amount of time. If you look at analytics for like YouTube videos, Typically, for most channels across the board, it's like two to two and a half minutes is the average watch time. Uh, on my channel right now, it's about four and a half to five and a half minutes per video, whereas my videos are typically 12 to 18 minutes. So people are sticking around for just a short amount of time. And looking at that, you, you have to think about, okay, where do I display my best images from this video? if I want them seen and then the validation thing comes into your mind too of will they think I'm a good photographer if I put my very first images in there and then my best images at the end kind of building up to it and creating story or you know how do I organize where I place my images and and my experiences throughout this vlog however this, the same thing can be said for podcasting too. I don't know, like I said, I don't, I don't look at analytics for podcasting that often, but how long are people sticking around to hear these discussions? Typically podcasts, if you think about how, or if I think about how I listen to podcasts, I listen from beginning to end, unless it's really not interesting to me, I will listen to the entire episode because you never know what's going to come out of a discussion between two people. Whereas 
with video content, whether that is free content on YouTube, or I also outsource and license a lot of my video content to other websites for teaching like visual wilderness, like outdoor photography guide. Um, how often are people watching those? How long are they watching those? How are they connecting to those? Are they learning from them and, and print sales? Whereas I do not do them at the moment, just have that validation factor that, Hey, keep going. You know, you're doing something right here. Uh, I, I see what you're doing. I see your creative expression and, and your, how you view a landscape. I respect that. Like I'm going to buy this. So that is very, not only validating, but, but humbling to me and allows me to feel a connection with somebody that like, Hey, they see what I see here and, and they respect that. Yeah. I think for me personally too, that, that is a very fulfilling aspect of it. I mean, I've, I've always enjoyed teaching and educating and I've taught a few classes and things like that and kind of help people one-on-one, -on -one. but you know, I, I've probably sold enough prints at this point that I shouldn't get such a kick out of it when I do, but mm -hmm. There's something about, I mean, I'll take my photos first and foremost for me. I mean, I, I have a rough idea of what people will buy versus what they don't buy. And I'm not always correct about that. But, you know, if I'm taking a photo first and foremost because I enjoy it. So to have someone else want to hang that in their home or give it to someone else to hang in their home, it I'll never stop being appreciative of that and feeling validated by that. Cause it's just as someone in a creative endeavor, it just, it, I think it feels very good to have someone want to sort of share that vision and creation with you. Yeah, definitely. And if you think about too, you know, when you first picked up a camera and, and thought, well, I really enjoy this. It would be nice to earn some income with this. The first thing that pops into your mind is, how cool would it be to have my photographs be hung in someone's home? And, and I think print sales, however you do them, if you do, or if you don't, or, you know, how much you sell, it, it's always fun to have somebody respect what you do. Oh, of course. All right. Well, here, here's my last one for you. So the photography industry as a whole is it, it's being, I think, increasingly affected by sort of, technical and software advances that make images easier and easier to create. So as a professional doing this full time, where do you think you see the future of photography going as a career? And, and have you done anything or are you planning on doing anything to kind of position yourself for success going years down the road? Uh, I think it's going more towards on demand type of content. Uh, I think that, and I've said this before, I said it uh, let's see, two and a half, maybe even three years ago on Matt Payne's podcast. I think workshops are dying. I think they're going to die off and they're not going to be, whether you do them or not, I, I think you can continue to do them, but I don't think they're going to be a as popular of a way to make money in photography as they are right now. Um, whether that is your goal to do workshops, I think you can do anything you want to do with, with photography and, and be successful in it. But I don't see that as being a strong source of income for years to come. There are multiple reasons for that. Um, the cost of them, the saturation of them, uh, the economy right now, 
currently and, and how low it is. Uh, the pandemic had a huge hit on them. What's the average uh, demographic for people who are doing workshops? Um, a lot of those factors play into why I do not think they will continue to be as strong as they are right now. I think on-demand information will continue to grow. YouTube is becoming more saturation on the daily and monthly scale uh, for photographers because more people are jumping into it. I think that's fantastic because of a lot of the reasons that we talked about earlier of having a face attached to an image or an idea or a way to view landscapes and locations. Um, it could also be detrimental to, to a way people experience and go to land landscape locations and damage those. So you have to take that with a grain of salt too. But in terms of earning an income, um, I think there's a lot of possibility coming up with online courses that are done very well. And I think we saw that done with the F4 project that Nick Page, Adam Gibbs, uh, Thomas Heaton, um, and Gavin Hardcastle did together that was videoed by Greg Snell. I think that was extremely well done by them. I think that is the future type of video course that people are going to come to expect because of the quality of the content that was there and the quality of video and, and education and experience that you got with something like that versus, you know, sitting down and, and paying $100, $150 for an hour long post-processing tutorial. Um, I think those are going to go away too unless you decrease the amount that you charge for something like that. The value has to, it, it has to correlate with the market. The higher your production goes, the more you can charge for that product. The lower your production is and the length of time and the amount of information and, and quality that you get out of that, the lower value that that is. So I have courses on my website right now that are, 15 when they're on sale, $10. Um, those are 45 minute courses that, you know, you can sit down, watch very quickly and learn something from. I understand that the quality of them and the information does not match up to something like the F4 project if we're comparing the two. But having something like that, more of um, a longer on-demand course that you can watch on your own time, um, pay less for than an in-field, in-person workshop it is how I see the market going for landscape photography. And, and that's to say too, like if people, you have to look at, at how people are consuming things in the world. If you look at how people consume like Netflix right now, what happens at the end of each episode? The next one starts playing in about five seconds. So people are binging content. How can you make content bingeable? And how can you make information the highest quality and entertaining as possible? You don't have to be funny. You don't have to be um, the most introspective photographer on the planet, but 
how can you relay information in an entertaining and relatable sort of way that really gives people a strong sense of how they can get better personally as a photographer. Um, that's where I think it's going now. Voice devices too. I maybe a little bit, um, maybe a little bit excited or, or forward thinking about this, but I also think that like Amazon Alexa devices, no one's really using those for photography or photography related content. But is there a time coming when I could say, Alexa, play the landscape photography show and it would start playing or Alexa, share the latest photography tip from David Johnston. And it would start saying that. I think that has possibility because we're starting to see more and more smart devices come into play into people's homes and in everyday lives and in their cars. And we're starting to see less reliance on picking up a phone and looking at information that way, just speaking it and having that answer come back immediately is something that could be coming in the future that no one's doing right now that, that, I'm not even doing right now and have no idea how to do right now. <laughs> All right. Well, he's David Johnston coming to a smart speaker near you very soon, I imagine. Um, hey, man, thanks for being willing to sort of answer some questions today. Be sitting in the hot seat and kind of hand over the reins of the podcast for an episode. I appreciate it. Hey, man, you did a great job. Podcasting is in your future. <laughs> <laughs> appreciate it. Thanks, man.